Do you want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily. It's called Spotify for Podcasters. It lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. You know I love that, and I promise you the other platforms don't offer that. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can also earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. I've been using Spotify for Podcasters from the very start. I highly recommend you give it a try. Just don't post on Monday. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com slash podcasters to get started. Welcome everyone to Monday Match Analysis. I'm Gil Gross. This is an absolutely massive show. We have a rematch of Nadal and Djokovic at Roland Garros, their first meeting since last year's uh, semifinal when Djokovic, for the second ever time, beat Rafa Nadal and went on to win Roland Garros. I'm going to get into that, a preview of that match, the things I'm going to be looking for, but also uh, a tremendous Nadal match uh, in order to get him to that point earlier today when he was able to beat uh, Felix Ojeda-Aliassime in five sets. Novak Djokovic, no trouble with Diego Schwartzman, and I'm not really going to get into that match at all, but Djokovic wiped the floor with him, which is obviously, needless to say, a very impressive result. Matchup nightmare for Schwartzman, yes, but to to beat someone who's that good, best of five on clay, that easily is, again, clearly a very impressive scoreline. So Djokovic rolls into the quarterfinals, Nadal struggles against a player uh, which, with less clay court pedigree than Diego, but a lot more firepower, and what a performance it was from FAA uh, to take Nadal to five, and I want to talk about that match first. Before I get into a little bit of a preview of Nadal and Djokovic in the quarterfinal, and then I will make quick mention of uh, the rest of the men's draw. We're going to get uh, Alcaraz Verev as well in the quarters on the top half, and then tomorrow, which is Monday as of the time of recording, we'll get the rest of the fourth round matches on the bottom half. So that's where we stand. Can't wait to get into it. I can't talk about this FAA Nadal match without skipping to 4-3 in the fifth set. That's the game that decided the match. It's the game that changed the match. And I want to take you through it. Felix is serving, all right? And just bear with me here because I think it's going to be worth a full play-by-play of what occurred in this game. Love all... Nadal makes a great first serve return, crushes the next ball, forehand inside out, finishes with an overhead. So took took control off of a first serve return. Love 15 now. Another first serve landed for FAA. Nadal hits this, uh, this return deep middle, way too deep for Felix to attack. Then Nadal hits a super deep backhand cross-court trade, deep enough to get a short ball on the next one. Nadal takes his forehand down the line from the center of the court. Very, very heavy. Felix now is defending. Hits what I thought was a a pretty good squash uh, slice forehand defense, which landed very short in the court in a a good way. And Nadal needs to move inside the court and from a low contact point hits a forehand down the line approach, which he just measures perfectly perfectly. And Felix misses a desperation pass. Would have been nearly an impossible pass. And he missed it. So now love 30. Good serve plus one by FAA on a second serve. 15-30. Nadal makes another neutralizing return. They get into an extended rally this time. And Felix hits a good cross-court angle. Nadal has an awkward slice. A backhand slice from a low contact point. Pushed out wide and takes it short down the line in that kind of awkward area where he's going to force Felix to come forward. Otherwise, he's stuck in no man's land. 
Felix doesn't want to hit uh, an approach on his backhand. He wants to hit it on his forehand. So he's going to run around. He hits it inside out. Inside out forehand approach. Nadal reacts very quickly. Ranges to his left and hits a forehand down the line passing shot. Really good reaction from Nadal, but ultimately just a very... Just a really awesome down-the-line slice. A great tactic to put Oje Aliassime in what was a, a pretty uncomfortable position there. And also, he nailed the passing shot. Service winner for FAA at 15-40. So now it's 30-40. Felix, another first serve. Wow, he's serving great in this game, isn't he? And, and he's hitting spots, too. Nadal's return on this occasion is actually attackable. Felix hits a forehand inside-in approach shot, and a good one, a strong one. Nadal has to go to the slice, and he hits a dipping cross-court slice pass. But Felix is there. He's going to close in on the net and hit a forehand cross-court drop volley. Nadal chases it down, dead run, full stretch, backhand down the line slice pass. Um, you know, uh, it was a dig. That's a shot that I feel like it doesn't have a good name for it. When you're retrieving a drop shot or a drop volley and you're on the full stretch and you're kind of just getting under the ball with continental grip. Anyway, whatever it is, Nadal hits the pass, gets the break of serve, crowds going crazy, break of serve, 5-3, fifth set, serves it out beautifully, game set match Nadal. What was that game though at 4-3? Did Felix make a single mistake? No. Did Felix miss any first serves? No. Did Felix attack the net and hit solid approach forehands whenever the opportunity presented itself? Yes. OJ Aliasim did everything right. Everything. And he was still... Watching the ball go by for winners from Nadal. He still gets his serve broken despite making every first serve and making zero mistakes off the ground and not getting passive and being aggressive. Everything he does right. Man, uh, that's just Nadal at Roland Garros stuff. That's just Nadal on Chatrier stuff. What more can you say? What more can you say if you're Felix and, and you try to say, okay, what went wrong here? What can we do differently? And you realize at 4-3, he plays what is a flawless game and Nadal still breaks the serve. That was just the absolute pinnacle and the epitome of Nadal at the French. And I just have to, I had to start with that game. Because uh, sometimes against Nadal at, at RG, you do everything right, and you're still watching the ball go past you. That's what happened at 4-3 in the fifth. All right, let's move on here, though. Uh, that was kind of the ultimately what what won the match for Nadal in the fifth set. Uh, but there was an ebb and flow uh, in this match that, that I kind of want to get into. I mean, ultimately, I thought Nadal played three great sets, but he also dipped. Uh, he There were two parts of the match where he didn't play well, and Felix was just... Such a good front runner and so fantastic on his serve on those occasions that he really gave Nadal no chance to come back in both of those sets. So the two Nadal dips were at the start of the match, Nadal coming out of the gate slow, not starting well at all, and at the start of the fourth set. Those were the two dips. And again, we know how hard it is when even if you break Nadal's serve very early in the match on clay, we know how hard it is to go the rest of the way protecting your serve, which Felix did on two occasions because he was fantastic. But I thought the other three sets were pretty pretty much class from Nadal. And ultimately, I come away from that match thinking both players played excellent. You know, I, I was impressed with Nadal's performance overall because I really think he earned everything he got there. I think all three sets that he won... He was fantastic again, and I thought Felix was also really good throughout. Now, his best wasn't good enough uh, in the fifth set. Uh, you know, Felix played great in the fifth set. It just wasn't good enough. 
for most of the match, what was happening tactically was advantage Nadal, advantage Nadal after the Felix serve plus one, but a lot of Felix serve plus one, a lot of great first serves from FAA and awesome forehand aggression and attacking the net by Oje Aliassime. I just really loved how he was handling short balls so much better than anything we would have seen early in FAA's career. So what we had here on Felix's serve, I'll, I'll just give you the numbers first and then I want to get a little deeper into it. Felix wins... Um, In, in points played on his serve, in four shots or less, so rallies one through four on his serve, he wins 65 to 24. Once you go past that and you go five shots or more where his serve is kind of taken out of the equation and that initial violent serve plus one sequence is, once you move past that, uh, it's 39 to 25 Nadal. So 65-24 Felix in one through four, 39-25 Nadal in five plus. Huge difference. And what you're also going to see is first serve, uh, first serve points and how those first serves were played versus second serve points. First serve points are going to be bang, bang, quick, violent, short points. And in that battle, you had percentage-wise, a 3% advantage for Nadal. But Felix made more first serves, so it was kind of even when it came to first serve effectiveness, if not advantage, actually, Felix, because of how often he was making the first serve. On second serve points one, it was plus 19% for Nadal. Again, as soon as we're playing neutral rallies, extended rallies, either Nadal on top of the point or... 50-50 situations, anytime it wasn't FAA in full control because of the serve that he had just hit, Nadal was getting the better of play very consistently. So that was happening throughout the match. So first, uh, I want to talk about Felix's just his serve and the way he was attacking short balls. I want to say, um, I went through the rankings and I wanted to see how many players do I think actually serve better than FAA. And I got seven players. I came up with seven players. I got Isner, Opelka, Medvedev, Zverev, Berrettini, Hercotch, and Kyrgios. I got seven players who serve better than FAA. I don't know. Uh, maybe it's because of Felix's height. He's, he's quite a bit shorter than actually all those guys, uh, except Kyrgios. He's Kyrgios' height, I believe. Uh, I don't know if it's because of his height. I don't know what it is, but for some reason, I don't know that that discourse has really caught on to how good FA's first serve was. And he just, in this match, he served as well as he possibly can. Uh, Percentage-wise, he was well above his average, his regular average, and he ended up serving 69% first serves in play. So that in itself, and he, he was hitting his spots so well in this match, that in itself was going to be difficult for Nadal to deal with. Uh, then, of course, you have how is FAA attacking when Nadal is able to get that return in play. Um, and oftentimes, of course, he's getting the ball in play rather meekly or short in the court. Nothing you can do about that. It's just, you know, when you're playing a great server, that's how it is. And... I think that Felix, the big, the biggest difference between Felix now and Felix when he was young is uh, FAA is able to take these short balls and hit them as approach shots, whereas he used to try to finish from the back of the court. If we saw this match when Felix was younger, uh, four years ago, three years ago, even two years ago, and to an extent last year too, you would have seen FAA, you know, trying to finish from the back of the court. And as a result, trying to cut the margins too fine. Nadal would have neutralized. He would have turned defense into offense on some occasions. He would have extended the rallies into Felix errors on many occasions. 
the reason that wasn't happening here is because Felix wasn't allowing the rallies to be extended by Nadal's neutralization. Every time the ball was short and Felix had a forehand, it was an approach shot. And not only could Felix then finish at net instead of the rallies being extended by Nadal's defense, um, but he could also give himself a little bit more margin and miss less of those attacking forehands because he wasn't trying to make it so good that he was hitting an outright winner from the from the back of the court. He knew, all I have to do right here is not necessarily hit a winner, but set up my next volley, which in essence allows him to go a little bit further away from the lines and hit a more reasonable forehand that he's not going to miss as much. So that's the big development for Felix. Really good job by FAA attacking the net and serving and hitting those those forehands with uh, those attacking forehands as approach shots and doing so successfully. So that was great by Felix. I thought there were so many occasions. I'll go through the match, first set, second set, third set. I'll kind of give you a, a quick summary of each set after I'm done with this. But that's what Felix did so well throughout the match. Serve plus one. One of the best serve plus one performances I've seen, uh, not only from Felix, but even just against Nadal on clay in general. Really awesome stuff. However, as I said, Nadal had the edge whenever he was able to survive that initial serve plus one. Obviously on serve, when Felix doesn't have the benefit of his serve, that's going to be a problem when it comes to breaking Nadal's serve. And with the exception of the the start of the first set and the start of the fourth set where Nadal had his dips in level, I don't think Felix did break Nadal's serve. So he really needed help in, in that respect from Rafa. He needed Rafa to go down in level in order to break serve because what he was able to bring from a defensive standpoint, from a neutral and return standpoint, uh, wasn't quite good enough. Um, why is that? You could you could really go on and on with all of the reasons why Nadal is better from, from neutral than Felix. But the thing that kind of stands out to me, or at least the thing that I'd like to highlight here is, you know, here are two players who want to control play with their forehand. And uh, you can't beat Nadal's aggressive high-margin forehand. You can't beat the consistency that Nadal brings on his attacking forehand uh, and the weight of shot he brings on his forehand as well. But but that's the thing is FAA actually has a very heavy forehand as well. There's a big difference, though, between how consistent Nadal is able to be on it and how consistent Felix is able to be on it. And that comes down to, in my opinion, Nadal's elite footwork, balance, margin, and decision-making. And Felix isn't there yet. In, in any of those respects. And he's not there from a, a movement standpoint. Nadal is still much better defensively. He just, he hits a better ball when he's stretched out. He, he's able to do more on the run. As a result, he's hitting better passing shots. He's also volleying better than Felix still. Uh, although FAA did have, a I think, a, a, good, a good match at net. All of those things are true. But, you know, when it comes to the forehand and the consistency... Nadal's ability to get his feet in position, his ability to be on balance, the margin that comes from the extra topspin that he has, and the decision-making that he has, picking the right forehand over and over again, uh, never kind of, never losing discipline or hitting an, uh, an, an irresponsible forehand, uh, a forehand that that is overzealous or overly aggressive or overly passive. You know, all of those things are just more than Felix uh, can bring to the table right now. And ultimately, you look at forehand on forced errors off the ground for the match, and uh, Nadal made 10 fewer than Felix. OJ Aliassim did uh, minimally more damage when it comes to winners and forced errors, minimally, but ultimately, it doesn't make up for the fact that Nadal's forehand, um, especially in the sets that he won, was uh, was more consistent than Felix's forehand. You could zoom out at the match and and look at unforced errors, by the way. And this kind of supports the idea that it was really the Nadal dips that allowed Felix to even 
capture breaks of serve in this match and, and win the two sets. Uh, first set, Nadal loses. He makes 15 unforced errors. Second set and third set, Nadal wins. He makes four and five, respectively. Fourth set, Nadal loses. He makes 13 unforced errors. Fifth set, Nadal wins. He makes four unforced errors. And again, supports the notion that Nadal played three fantastic sets and two poor sets. Credit for Felix for winning on the two occasions that Nadal let up a little bit. So uh, let me take you through. Let me take you through chronologically, and then we'll call it a wrap on this five-set win for Nadal. Uh, first set, both came out poor. Nadal missed on his first six break points. Three of them, bad mistakes. Um, and Nadal misses a couple of forehands and goes down a break. But for the most part, it was actually Nadal's backhand that was atrocious in this first set. Terrible, terrible backhand performance in the first set. I think he missed more backhands in the first set than he did for the rest of the match, or just about. And uh, again, that's really bad for Nadal because you know that you know that he's not really making it up, making up for it on the backhand side with a ton of damage. It's just a net negative if he's going to miss backhands. Uh, the only positive for Nadal is uh, he went down five-one, and he clearly found his range off the ground. Now, Felix was able to close it out after Nadal broke serve once. Felix was able to close it out because he was serving incredibly well. And you started to see FAA get his rhythm when it comes to serving. But you also saw Nadal find his range off the ground. And the, the parade of, of mistakes that he was making at the start of the match, that was gone by the end of the set. And... That continued into the second set. But Felix also continued to serve incredibly well. Nadal wasn't making any errors anymore and clearly had that edge from neutral. But as soon as Rafa made a few returns, which happened at 4-3, he broke FAA's serve straight away and uh, won that second set 6-3. In the third set, Nadal continued to be really good on his forehand side, attacked the net efficiently. Uh, Felix... Started to miss his forehand less. By the way, forehand unforced errors in the second set were 9-0. to zero. 9 for Felix, 0 for Nadal. Highlighting uh, what I was just talking about in terms of that, the difference between Nadal and, and Felix playing through their aggressive forehands. Uh, third set, though, uh, this was Felix's worst serving set by far. He had no chance to win. It was the only set he didn't serve well. And, uh, yeah, FAA had no chance serving like that. Nadal wins it, was it 6, what was it? 6-2. Six, 6-2, two. Six, two, not a close set. Uh, fourth set, it was kind of feeling like Nadal in four. I mean, Nadal won the second set, you know, since after 3-4 in, in the second set, as soon as Felix's serving cooled down, it just looked like, okay, you know, Felix got, Nadal had a bad start. Felix got really hot on serve after that one-way traffic for Nadal. That's kind of what it was looking like. But Nadal had a blip. You know, he had a hiccup here. He was up 40 love at love one. He made three errors in a row. And the unforced errors continued to flow. He handed Felix a lead here. And then, again, Felix first serves early aggression, tons of net approaches in this fourth set from FAA. And too good from Felix. Nadal had no chance to break back in this set after after getting broken from 40 love up with that the plethora of unforced errors that he hit at that love one game. I mean Felix was way too good and gave gave Nadal no chance with the way he was serving and coming forward behind his early aggression. Now in the fifth set Highest quality set of the match. A repeat of set number two, where Nadal was winning whenever he was able to get into the point, sink his teeth into the point. But Felix serving so well, it didn't matter. Because Nadal couldn't sink his teeth into the point. Not when you have the eighth best server in the world, in my opinion, making every first serve. And let's see what it was in this fifth set. Let's see. I know it was high. It was 
75% first serves in for Felix. Not when you have an elite serve making it over and over again and uh, good forehands behind it to boot. Um, however, then you have that magical game at 4-3 where, uh, you know, which I started the analysis with, which was a magic game and that was it. That's how I saw the match. Uh, and I'll end just quickly on the Uncle Tony storyline. Obviously, I don't think it played any, had any effect on the match. But, uh, you know, I, I think Uncle Tony's relationship with Felix, everything about, everything about it is fair. It was said last year, last year, when they first got together, that if Nadal and Felix played... Tony was not going to give Felix advice, uh, tactical advice for that match, and he was not going to be in Felix's box. And if Felix didn't like that, he could have said, okay, no thank you, Uncle Tony, then, then I don't want to work with you. But he said, no, I agree to those terms. There, there's no issues there. You know, that's, a, that's an agreement. Look, family first. Okay, I understand from Tony's perspective, family is family. And uh, I, I get that. So there's no foul play there. What I I think the only area where among the three people involved here, Rafa, Tony, and Felix, the only critique I would have for any of them is Tony could have been less public about this whole thing. I don't know why, you know, as a coach in tennis, you 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 have a choice to kind of sink into the background. And I think especially before the match, I don't like how public he was about about the whole situation, about wanting Rafa to win, uh, because that's not what Felix needed to be reading, and uh, that's not what needed to be the headlines coming into the match. So that's my only criticism. Other than that, I think fair play to everyone involved, including Tony, because family family has to come first here, and... Uh, Again, uh, Tony was very upfront about this when they started their relationship. So that is that. Let's move on. Uh, let's talk about this this quarterfinal. Nadal versus Djokovic. First, elephant in the room, the scheduling, the incoming hullabaloo about when this match is going to be scheduled day or night. We have to learn from 2020. We must. We must resist the urge to make assumptions about how the conditions are going to affect this match. We just, we have to. Uh, all I will do is present the facts, which is this. In 2020... Cold and slow October conditions, overcast day. Nadal and Djokovic play the final. Everyone is expecting the conditions to benefit Novak. And Nadal wins decisively in, in that final in 2020. And what happened in the match? The conditions looked too heavy for Novak, at least the 2020 version of Novak, they looked too heavy. And what ended up happening was Djokovic had to try to flatten out his forehand and overpress in order to hit through the court. They made a lot of unforced errors trying to do that uh, and go into the drop shot because he could not hit through the heavy conditions, could not hit through Nadal's speed. Whereas Nadal, who, especially on the forehand side or exclusively on the forehand side, hits a bigger ball, especially when it comes to that clay court bounce and and how the RPM will, will help it, kind of help the ball get through the clay, and Nadal's flatter strokes doesn't benefit from that. Uh, Nadal could hit through that court with his forehand. His forehand was a factor, could get through Nadal's speed. That's what happened in 2020. With that being said, it's undeniable how the players feel. Djokovic feels good at night. He likes playing at night. He likes cool conditions. And uh, 
he knows Nadal doesn't. Nadal thinks his forehand is better during the day. Nadal thinks that he uh, is better in this matchup when he's able to bounce the ball high above Djokovic's shoulders, especially on the backhand side. And Nadal thinks that his forehand works better in daytime conditions because he gets more jump off the court when the ball is warmer and the the, the air in the ball um, expands, making the ball bouncier. Physics, ladies and gentlemen, chemistry. Um, so that is how the players feel. There's no denying that. Novak has said that. Uh, th- this is not a Nadal. That's not um, a matchup specific thing for Nadal. If Nadal was playing, I mean, if Nadal was playing anyone, he prefers to play in the day with the sun beating down. I also think it warms up his body. He likes to sweat uh, and feel feel his body warm right off the bat. I think that's a factor as well. Now, French organizers, the FFT, are going to make this decision based on which TV partner they want to take care of. That's ultimately how this is going to work. And if this were uh, if this were the U.S. Open, um, I am sure that the match would be played at night uh, because that's what. ESPN would want who has the rights to the U.S. Open uh, because they want prime time for better ratings. In this case, you have a situation uh, where the night session at Roland Garros is owned by Amazon and the day session is owned by France TV, which and, and France TV is free to the public. Anybody can watch it. Uh, this Amazon thing is, I, I guess you need a Prime membership, whatever it is in France. I don't know. It's streaming, and it's a smaller audience. Which TV partner does do the organizers want to take care of? Take care of in the sense that whoever gets this match is going to get a huge rating. I don't know. I'm not a. I'm not from France. I don't know about French TV. I don't. I don't know. I'm, you know, uh, if this were American TV, I'd give you my opinion, but I don't know when it comes to French TV. All right. Those are the facts. Uh, how, but, but my thing on this is let's see what the match looks like and make a determination on how the conditions on, on what the effect of the conditions were. Let's not make these assumptions and claim, regardless of which way it goes, or or claim you know that the fix is in or bias. Let's watch the match and see what happens. And either, either I either it's oh I don't think the conditions actually played much of a factor, or they did. And and how did they? Let's see. Because in 2020, everybody was dead wrong. And I cannot believe that two years later, it seems like it seems like we're ready to forget that. Don't forget it. We were all, not me actually. Um, I I was suspicious of this thing, but but many were were very much wrong about their assumptions in 2020. Maybe I was wrong. I I forget actually kind of what I was saying. Um, but but I remember I remember wondering if Djokovic's uh, Djokovic's forehand was going to be big enough in 2020 to actually hit through slower conditions. Uh, I was concerned about the drop shots throughout that clay court season um, that Djokovic was hitting because I thought he was using it not as a not as a um, kind of I guess complementary tactic, but as a necessity safety blanket tactic or, or out of desperation. I saw too many desperation drop shots from Djokovic in 2020 and not enough forehand penetration. And that's why I was I was dubious of the slow conditions actually supposedly helping Djokovic. And that's what happened. Okay, let's talk about last year now. Let's talk about what happened when Djokovic beat Nadal for only the second time at Roland Garros. Only time before that was 2015. Uh, overall head-to-head now is 2-7 to seven for Nadal. Novak had a perfect forehand day. 
much better than 2020, much different than 2020, uh, a lot a lot more uh, spin and a lot heavier and bigger on the forehand and almost flawless, mistake-free play with the exception of one forehand serving out the third set that he missed. That could have been costly. Uh, but a perfect forehand day. He, played in a, he made Nadal play a ton on his backhand and his fitness withstood the insane intensity of that match. Really high intensity, and Nadal could keep it up for three sets, and in the fourth set, he just looked weary, he looked dead, and Djokovic was still going. After the match, we know what happened. Nadal pulls out of Wimbledon, pulls out of the Olympics, failed to come back in D.C., uh, foot bothering him. Uh, how much of it was fitness? How much of it was foot pain? I don't know. Who cares? The point is, Djokovic withstood the intensity. Nadal did not. That's what happened last year. Uh, when it comes to Djokovic's forehand, more specifically, the sideline breaking cross-court forehand kept landing. Novak had masterful feel on it, and it gave Nadal fits even before it took out his legs. And I think it had a lot to do with how, how weary Nadal got in that match. Was, was how often Djokovic was landing that shot. But even before that, it felt like Nadal couldn't find an effective way to reset the point from that position. He could not dig out of his backhand corner and get back to neutral. What he loves to do is go down the line, uh, high, loopy backhand down the line to try to reset the point. Djokovic was doing a good job of taking his backhand hard early cross-court into the open court to try to prevent prevent um, Nadal from doing that. Um, you know, Nadal was sometimes going to the slice because he was stretched out. Djokovic was doing a great job of staying on top of the point um, when Nadal was slicing it. Uh, Rafa just couldn't ha put enough weight on his cross-court backhand to back Djokovic up perhaps and hit hit deep and, and heavy enough that he was able to reset the point that way. There was just no coming back. Uh, Djokovic was dominating with that pattern of play. Whenever he was able to pull Nadal off the court and make him hit backhands from pos positions of distress, especially outside the sideline, okay? Now, here are the questions coming into tomorrow. Did Novak unlock something tactically, or did he just find an advantage executionally? Meaning, can Djokovic execute that shot that well every time, and he it was just the first time he tried, or was that an aberration? And really, the feel that he had on that cross-court, you know, rolled, angled forehand is is something that he's not going to have all the time. And he just found lightning in a bottle there. Or maybe Nadal um, had a less than uh, a below average day on the backhand. And really, he, he would usually be able to dig out of that. And he wasn't able that time, right? So the question is, and what we're going to find is we need more sample size. We need more matches and or maybe just one other match to see, is it going to happen again? Because if it happens again, then Novak probably unlocked something tactically. If it doesn't happen again, either we see Nadal have a counter tactically, and then we'll see what that is, or executionally, the, the equation becomes different. And either Nadal has a more confident day on the backhand, Djokovic doesn't execute the shot as well, one of those things could happen. Another thing that happened last year... Djokovic was able to make returns to the Nadal backhand. Backhand returns to the Nadal backhand. Exceptionally difficult to do for a right-hander. Nadal serves to the righty backhand. You have to go either inside out or down the line. And you have to deal with Nadal's footwork. Nadal's incredible footwork to make forehands. So hard. Djokovic in Rome last year didn't do it well. Missed crap ton of backhand returns in the third set. Didn't do it well. Roland Garros, a couple weeks later, did it exceptionally well. What are we going to see this time? Is Djokovic going to make backhand returns to the backhand? 
and to take away Nadal's plus one forehand, like he did, especially on the second serve last year. And then again, fitness. Fitness was underrated as a separating factor last year because let's not forget, you know, they just play, they had just played a third set tiebreak, a tight one. Rafa had a set point in the third set. As much as we could say Nadal was the, you know, Nadal found, Nadal was far better um, and had the the far better level in the match after the first set. You know, it it's true in a way, but let's not forget the third set was kind of a toss-up. What made that match feel lopsided is what happened in the fourth set when Djokovic still had gas, Djokovic still had juice, Nadal didn't. So fitness was a was a separating factor last year. You know, Nadal didn't have no answers from a tennis perspective. He had answers in the third set. It was close. It was it was it was a tussle. It, the reason it was no longer a tussle, and the reason we'll look back on that match and we'll say, well, Nadal didn't really come close to winning that match, which he didn't, uh, was because he had no fitness in the fourth. Could that happen again? Uh, might Djokovic again have a higher threshold for intensity? And now you're thinking, well, Gil, maybe this match against Felix even plays into that. Uh, Nadal plays four hours, 21 minutes. I will say this, a fully fit Nadal, a fully fit Nadal should be able to recover from that. He should. And he should not be tired. Uh, with the day off, you know, that match coming in the, in the, uh, the fourth round, his first physical match of the fortnight for Nadal. He should fully fit Nadal recovers from that. But I don't know if if we have fully fit Nadal here. I don't know. And then, you know, we have the the weird thing when it comes to Nadal's foot is in his words, it's just a day by day, you don't know what happens thing. You know, could could be good on one day, bad on the other, but one thing is very clear to me at least is that it's you know, the foot thing is not usually a problem unless the intensity uh, and the, the hours on court really, really build up. But I don't know. It's just a question mark. Um, all I can say is, from a fitness standpoint, is it was a separating factor last year. Maybe the number one, uh, regardless of all the tactical things that, that you can discuss. So... Um, here are the main things I'm going to be looking for. On serve return, obviously Djokovic's backhand return to Nadal's backhand. If Novak is able to land that return, is Nadal going to be willing to mix location, to stop serving 75% to the Djokovic backhand as he normally does in this matchup and to most righties? Is he going to change it up, which he didn't last year? Um, is Nadal going to be willing to be offensive on second serve return. I think looking back on the match in 2021, that's one of the areas that Rafa might look back and he said and he might think I had an opportunity there to maybe do more and to maybe swing the match in my favor. Instead of starting because Djokovic is an aggressive second serve returner, especially if Nadal's going to get predictable and he's going to take that those backhand returns hard and heavy and deep and be assertive on them and then to get on top of the baseline right away and to try to open with forehands and dictate. Is Nadal going to do that? Is Nadal going to is Nadal going to do that back? Cuz at a certain point Rafa needs to be less accepting of neutrality and respect Novak's ability like nobody else can to actually play with Rafa from neutral on a clay court. So that's the serve return dynamic. And when it comes to neutral, besides watching what Nadal does out of his backhand corner, I'm curious to see forehand to forehand. Can Djokovic go toe to toe with Nadal again, forehand to forehand? Because you can't convince me that when it comes to clay, that has ultimately been the difference maker for Nadal. Uh, serve return dynamic neutralized a little bit. On clay for, for everyone. So in, in the Djokovic-Nadal matchup, Djokovic usually having the superior first serve to Nadal. Um, and he's the better fast court returner, in my opinion, as well. 
Uh, with that out the window on clay, you throw that out the window, you start playing neutral. What's going to be the difference in neutral? I, I think both of them have always been equal when it comes to movement, defense, fitness, uh, rally tolerance, more or less, okay? More or less, equal. Big difference on clay, the forehand. On the clay, also you can create more forehands, but you need more weight of shot. You need more power to hit through the playing surface. Nadal has that. Djokovic doesn't, generally speaking, advantage Nadal on clay in this head-to-head. I think the forehands are the main difference. And last year, what happened? Djokovic matched him. Djokovic was right there with him. Forehand, four-forehand. Not forehand, two-forehand. Okay, this isn't about a cross-court pattern. We're not. We're talking about a righty against the lefty. Not forehand, two-forehand. Forehand and forehand. Is Nadal going to have that usual edge that he has, or are we going to see a repeat of last year where Djokovic, in what I see as a correction of what we saw from 2018 to 2020, when I I don't think Djokovic's forehand was big enough for the clay, um, largely speaking, generally speaking. Um, Are we going to see Djokovic match Nadal on that side again for potency. I'm talking about potency here where Nadal is superior generally. Let's see. All right, quickly going through the rest. Um, Zverev and Alcaraz. I have Carlos in this match. Zverev still looking for his first uh, top 10 victory at a major. I think he's going to have to wait a little bit longer uh, Matchup-wise, I'll say that droppers should be a problem for Zverev. It's a great tactic against Sasha for any player. We know how proficient Alcaraz is on the drop shot. Uh, you know, you take away Alcaraz's ability to drop back and defend. You uh, force him to come forward. He doesn't have the best hands. He's not the best volleyer. It's just a fantastic uh, play f- against Zverev, and I think Alcaraz is going to use it to great effect, uh, just like he did against Hatchinov, by the way, who's actually a similar player to Zverev in that respect. Um, you know, Alcaraz just needs to be ready for Zverev to absorb his pace. And as long as, as Carlos is ready for that and, uh, finds, finds ways to, to win points offensively other than hitting through Zverev, which, you know, it's going to be really hard for him to do. Uh, as long as he has that, I do think Alcaraz will win. Uh, tomorrow, I think we'll get Hercotch over Rude. Uh, Rude just still, you know, he's not. Look, I thought it was a monumental third-round victory for Kaspar Ruud in a fifth set against Lorenzo Sinego uh, just to conquer the Demons, having lost third round three years ago against Federer, two years ago against Team, last year against ADF. He had to get past the third round. He had to do it, and he's done it, and I think that's big for him, and kudos to him, but I actually don't think even on clay, I think his return is going to be a problem with the way Hercotch is serving, even on clay. And I like what I'm seeing from Hubert Hercotch, and I think more of the pressure's on Casper, and I still think Rude looks a little bit shaky, all things considered. You know, he shouldn't have gone five sets with Sinego, if we're being completely honest. Um, And and, and Hercotch, man, what was his last? Oh, he, he beat Kafan easily. 7-5, 6-2, 6-1. Checkinato, 6-1, 6-4, First round, easy match. Not even gonna, not even gonna go there. Uh, but yeah, yet to drop a set. So I like Hercotch in that match. Uh, then you go to uh Pass versus Rune. Uh, obviously, you're gonna favor Steph there, but it, it could be interesting. I mean, Rune it was my uh, dark horse in that quarter, beat Chapovalov round one. He's looked very impressive from uh in, in all of his matches since then. Uh, I just, I'm just curious to see if um, Tsitsipas drags Rune into a, a long physical match or, on the contrary, if Rune is able to play well enough to get to that stage. Uh, I want to see how he holds up physically in a best-of-five match against an elite player. Uh, very excited to see that. But, uh, yeah, Tsitsipas... I, I think... Um, I think Tsitsipas far more efficient in um, in the serve plus one, and uh, I, I I like him in the, in that matchup. Uh, Sinner Rublev, as I as I said at the start, slight edge to Sinner for me there. 
Uh, Rublev backhand to backhand needs to uh, try to see if he can do a little bit better against Sinner in that pattern. Sinner usually gets the better of that. And uh, Rublev's ability to protect his second serve against Sinner's very heavy, powerful second serve returns, which he can bring um, off of the forehand or the backhand. So I like Sinner in that. Uh, Medvedev defeats Chilich. You know, Chilich's first serve gets neutralized. That's a problem. And I like Medvedev in that. Um, I'm pretty sure... I'm pretty sure that's all of my... Yeah, that's those are my my predictions, right? Besides Ketsmanovic, I think that besides Ketsmanovic being in the quarterfinal, I mean, it's the same as what I predicted pre-tournament. And I got the, the top half right. But again, it's so chalky. Uh, I didn't make a lot of bold picks. I didn't think there would be a lot of crazy results on the men's side, and there haven't been. So um, looking forward to, to how this, this shapes up. Blockbuster quarterfinal. Uh, let me know what you guys think in the comments. I am working on T2 next week, really early hours. So I don't know how that's going to affect my output on YouTube. Uh, Tuesday through Friday, I'm working next week on uh, on T2, so uh, which is um, a, a new network for Tennis Channel. Um, so yeah, uh, we'll see. But I'm uh, I'm hoping to do as much as possible. It might strain me a little bit. But I will still have a presence. So that's what's coming up. Um, in that sense, man, I'd kind of prefer Nadal Djokovic to be a night session. Easier for me to uh, to watch uh, the entire thing start to finish. Or guaranteed that I'd be able to at least. Because I'm, I'm working the morning. So uh, that is that. Um, yeah. At Gil underscore gross on Twitter. Give me a follow. Hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe. I'll see you next time.